Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambutasa. Buddhang damang sanghang namasami. Over the last week, I have introduced a few different types of meditation. And it's important to know in the Theravada tradition, you don't just have one or two types of meditation. It's not like you just have meditation on the breath and then vipassana practice, right? I mean, those kind of concepts, I think, um, are, uh, should be outdated soon. Um, because the, the breadth of the Theravada tradition is such that you've got loads and loads of different types of techniques, much more than I can present in one week of a meditation retreat. So even the guided meditations that I do, it's just uh, a small taste of what's there in the Theravada tradition. With the different type of techniques, to a certain degree, it's helpful and important to experiment and try out new things, uh, experiment, uh, see what works for you. But if you do that, then it's good to take up a particular uh, meditation technique for uh, an extended period of time, not just one sitting, but say for a month. You know, once you leave the retreat, if there's been uh, some type of uh, one of these practices which seems to be um, beneficial at this particular time, then just take it up and really give it a good go for at least a month and doing nothing else. And then if you want to try something else, then again, drop that, but take up something else full time and really give it a good shot because it's only then that you're going to know what the effects are on your own mind. And it's very important to have that clarity that okay, when I sit down, this is what I'm going to work on. This is what I'm working on. Um, this particular type of technique. So when you sit down, you say, well, I'm going to do metta meditation. Then if the mind starts to go back to paying a, uh, attention to another technique, sensations in the body, for example, then then at that time and place, that's considered a distraction and you want to bring it back to whatever um, technique that you're going to be working on. It's important 
not to become too confused in the meditation. So if you have a tool chest full of different types of practices, it's, it's a real skill to know when to pick up the right tool and to hang on to it. And uh, you don't need to have mastery over 20, 30, or 40 different types of meditation objects. But if you can, say, d deeply develop a handful, then that can be useful. And at different times in life, uh, different types of meditations may be very beneficial, more or less than at other times in life. Generally, you can't go wrong with meditation on the breath, but it's not the easiest of the various meditations, precisely for the reason that it keeps changing. Every breath is unique. Every breath is different. And probably the most difficult thing about Anapanasati is that the more relaxed you get, the more refined the breath gets, and the more difficult it is to follow it. And so uh, just when you're going to be getting mindful, developing enough mindfulness to, to, be, to have that continuity on the breath, that causes the body and mind to relax, and then the breath gets even more refined, and then the mind easily wanders away. So easier techniques, for example, are when you just repeat a word internally. And um, that's a very simple technique, but um, very effective. And so if you take a meaningful word and just repeat it over and over again, internally, over and over again, and the Thai forest tradition, the classic one is Bhutto. And uh, you can do it from the time you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night. You can do it in conjunction with the breath if you want. Breathing in, boot, breathing out, do. Boot, breathing out, do. Uh, you can do it while doing walking meditation with each step. Boot, do, boot, do. And the meditation object, that word, then essentially is the same any time that uh, we repeat it, whether we're feeling excited or calm. Um, so it has uh, that advantage. And also, it has the advantage of if we need to raise energy, then we can recite it with a bit more oomph and energy. Right? Say, buto, buto. And if we need to relax, then we can say it with uh, a gentleness. You see, buto. <laughs> and, and how we relate to our meditation object then will help to bring the mind back into balance. And it's always uh, primary importance to see where is the mind getting out of balance. So you're not just knocking your head against the wall. You, know, you may have too much energy, and that's the reason the mind is, is wandering. And, and then if you try to come at it with um, you know, a sawzall of all your tools and a, <laughs> or a skill saw, then uh, it actually exacerbates the problem. Uh, you need to come at it with something much more refined and, and gentle. Or if you've got too little energy and the mind's wandering because of that, then instead of um, just kind of just relaxing and letting the mind float, uh, you need to um, do something more active, uh, bring some energy in there. So in the Theravada tradition, it's not the case that there's just the one technique or one technique is going to save you. 
And I think this is um, sometimes a misconception. When I was looking around for places to ordain, uh, going, you know, looking at different traditions, and pretty much for the whole of the last um, 20, almost 25 years now, I haven't found any other teachers that seem more impressive to me than the Thai forest ajans. And uh, that's the main reason that I ended up ordaining in Thailand and staying there for so long. Now that's not to say that that there aren't, it's just that in my limited uh, experience, those were the most impressive teachers I met. And it wasn't that I started with a Thai forest tradition, I didn't. But when I went to them and then say, well, these seem to be the wisest people that I've ever met, how did they practice? You know, and especially once I learned Thai and I could speak to them in private, one-on-one, -on -one, then I could ask in more detail about some of their, some of the, well, how much samadhi you do, do you need, for example? Um, you know, what type of meditation techniques are going to work? All these type of questions. But it's not what I started with. I mean, when I first went to Asia, I did the classic three-month um, rising, falling, Burmese-style, Mahasi-style meditation technique with all of the accompanying um, literature around that and understanding around that and the daily interviews and um, the whole thing. And at the time, you know, I, I was very impressed with it and, uh, you know, according to what I knew at the time and then adopted that way of thinking, at least at that time. Um, but I... I uh, you know, as the years went on, both in from discussing meditation with with forest ajans and also just watching um, on a much more superficial level the unfolding of my own mind, uh, I had to reevaluate how we looked at that, and also just by going back and reading the suttas. You know, that was. I mean, when I first ordained, there, there weren't really any um, modern translations of the suttas. There were just a few scattered here and there. Uh, but after, um, certainly within the last uh, 15 years, lots of good translations have come out, making it much easier to go back to the original Pali. And, and that was great, because uh, you could go back and say, oh, Geez, that, that's, so that's what the Buddha is supposed to have taught. And it, it seemed to correspond uh, very much with how the forest ajans were teaching, even though the forest ajans were by no means scholars. Now, I think there's a, a bit of a, a, a fallacy that there are 
in the Theravada tradition, two main types or schools of meditation. You've got your Samatha school and you've got your Vipassana school and they're totally different and you can't mix them and they lead to different results. Different meditation objects, different type of everything and and uh, one will uh, lead to enlightenment and the other will uh, lead to just being stuck in samsara in some heavenly realm somewhere. <laughs> I'm not going to say which is which. <laughs> Now, um, I one thing to note is that when I did go back to the Pali Canon, there was no um, there's no indication in the Pali Canon that there was a division like that. I mean, when I really started to do some research into it, more like scholarly research, research, I realized you know there, there's there was, there was nothing like that in the Pali Canon. The Buddha wasn't teaching in that way. In the commentaries, which started to uh, be written down um, many hundreds of years after the Buddha passed away, like in the Visuddhi Marga, then it begins to mention a bit about people who have different emphasis in their practice. But it's really only in the sub-commentarial literature, which which was written, you know, thousands of years after the Buddha passed away, and in different countries, it was. And uh, it's really only in that literature that you get this very very distinct development of two different schools. You've got your your samatha or your samadhi school, and you've got your vipassana school. And the twain shall never meet. And then, um, I guess, in my own very limited experience, when I was starting to to do, quote-unquote, vipassana meditation, then uh, these questions were arising a lot. Well, what is actually the definition of insight? What's the definition of samadhi? Uh, I mean, uh, what's the de- what's the difference between samadhi and mindfulness, concentration and mindfulness? You know, these kinds of questions, and not from a book's definition, right? And that's not actually that helpful, because it's it's easy just to recite, you know, the literature, and say, well, this is what samadhi is, this is what vipassana is, but actually, you know, what's the experience in your own mind? when you're meditating. And I was doing that um, kind of the classic Mahasi Burmese technique of paying attention to the rising and falling of the belly and uh, touching spots on the body, uh, noting. And as I was doing that, this was before I knew anything about samadhi really, um, samadhi started to arise and uh, just kind of the the, the initial um, indications of uh, samadhi, brightness, etc., started to arise just through the intensity of the practice and and the conditions and the solitude. And went and reported this, and 
And um, the monk who was guiding me said, oh, no, 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 bad, bad. <laughs> Steer away from that one. Um, so I said, okay, okay, did that. But, but when I, when uh, I ordained in the Thai forest tradition, and I started to spend time with people like um, these eminent Ajahn Chah disciples, like Ajahn Biak, for example. He was probably the first real meditation master that I spent extended period of time with. And started to talk to him about, about that. Um, and started to inquire into the life and the practices of all the, the various the, the famous forest teachers, I realized, well, there wasn't a single one that I knew of that had attained even the first level of enlightenment without having really good samadhi. And it wasn't necessarily the case that, okay, you have to develop samadhi all the way first and then turn to vipassana. You know, this is another misconception. In the unfolding of the mind, the development of meditation or bhavana, then as soon as there's a little bit of calm, right? As soon as you're even just relaxing the body, taking a deep breath, relaxing the body, feeling a little bit of calm and centeredness, okay, that's a little taste of samadhi. And already, just through that, it's easier to see things a bit more clearly. The mind's not totally scattered. And so that's, that's the initial stage of insight, or wisdom, the, the seeds of it. Now, for some small percentage of Buddhist practitioners, they find it easy to develop samadhi. And they can sit down and they have a natural gift or inclination just to allow the mind to be calm and it goes into that and and for those people then they can develop that to a, a great degree before taking up for example a theme of contemplation of the body and a few of the ajans are like that ajan piak really being one of them but there are many of the f- famous ajans who started more with the uh, the wisdom side, the contemplation, and then that gradually led to the mind calming down, and then that led to more insight and a gradual deepening that way. One of the f- very famous Thai forest masters, Ajahn Mahabua, he wrote this little essay called. Wisdom develops samadhi. So I mean, I mean, traditionally the idea is a sila develops samadhi and samadhi develops wisdom, which is the general unfolding of the mind. But in many in many ways, you know, if you look at it, wisdom develops samadhi. For example, if you want to sit down and say, okay. The goal is to have a little bit of peace of mind, but 
There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of continuity of awareness or inner peace. So then we have to investigate. We have to look. You know, to a certain to a certain extent, we just have to rely on persistence and patience and bringing the mind back and bringing the mind back. But we also have to rely a lot on our wisdom, the wisdom that we already have. Let's say, well, why won't my mind settle down and be centered and be peaceful and balanced right now? You know, what is it that's getting in the way? What am I holding on to? What am I attached to? Why is my mind going off obsessively thinking about this or that? Or why am I falling asleep? You know, what is it? And we can use the uh, the power of our analytical mind to help us develop a certain inner peace of samadhi. Those of us who've grown up in modern society, and we tend to have placed a lot of emphasis on developing analytical mind. Right? Uh, probably that comes easier to us than um, just sitting out in the middle of a field watching a water buffalo all day. Right? And, you know, in the time of Ajahn Man or Ajahn Chah, a lot of the young guys in those days, their job as children was just to watch the water buffalo, make sure he didn't run off into the rice fields and eat the rice, and just watch the water buffalo. And that type of training uh, is much more conducive to developing samadhi. It's simple. Uh, Samadhi is generally the the movement of the mind towards being uh, whole, unified, simple. Whereas the the, the wisdom side, or vipassana side, is more of the um, dissecting reality a bit in order to try to understand parts of it, and understanding certain parts of it fully, then, then understanding arises that, well, everything else is of the same nature. So there's more of a, uh, of a kind of dissecting, a, a chopping, looking at things in detail, whereas the samatha energy is unifying. But I think for most of us, it's just a combination of the two. There are some days where if you can sit down and just follow your breath, even for 10 breaths in a row, great, you already start to feel some bit of peace that comes from that. And there are some days you sit down and you feel, oh, that was a nice peaceful sit. And maybe the next sit, maybe the opposite. The mind may be scattered for whatever reason, or it may have been that 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 level of peace kind of brought up something <coughs> below the surface. And so then you may have to rely on a whole different set of tools, you know, rather than just going back and, and uh, doing the same thing you did the last time. It may not work anymore. Each Each moment is different. Usually what happens is that we have a little bit of calm, gives a little bit of clarity, 
the clarity leads to a little bit of seeing clearly and then letting go and then that little bit of letting go leads to a bit more calm because when, when we really let go of something there's sort of a relief and settling and calming which is a deepening of the samadhi and then the samadhi becomes a bit more strong and then uh, that gives a bit more oomph uh, strength behind uh, the clarity which allows the letting go and investigation to go a bit deeper so there's even a little more letting go happening which leads to even more peace and, and they go hand in hand that way and, and they develop each other and even if you're trying to develop only one you can't get away from it they go together even if you try to just develop samadhi there's going to be wisdom being developed in the process and even if you're just trying to develop vipassana you're going to develop samadhi in the process if you're doing it properly now if you know the Goenka technique of body sweeping moving the awareness throughout the body very systematic all through the body up and down now that's a so-called Vipassana technique um, I mean just a side note there is no mention in, in the suttas of that there's an idea that this is going back to the original but there's actually no mentions in, in the suttas of a technique like that it doesn't mean it's not a good technique and, and I like it I use it regularly but it's basically a samadhi technique <laughs> if you if you really look at the effect you know if you move the awareness and you're doing it right and you've got a continuity of mindfulness happening you're developing um, a sustained continuity of mindfulness which is leading to calm that's there you go that's that's samadhi and then if you're doing it intensively like in a retreat situation with all of the supports of managers and cooks and uh, conducive situations where you don't have much to work think about except uh, for doing a technique like that then you can get some really good samadhi going so samatha vipassana it's more like you know two sides of one coin Um, you can put uh, emphasis on one or the other or equally but basically they're they're going to go together the important point is that when when they are both developing in balance then there's a certain point where the mind has enough uh, strength clarity uh, and insight and peace to allow the insight to go deep enough that there's a, a significant letting go a significant life-changing mind-changing consciousness altering insight which would be the first level of enlightenment now this is um, how people define that is can be different in different places some people have a lower definition of what that is some people have a higher definition of what that is and that can lead to confusion in some people's minds generally um, 
my initial experience with um, the uh, the Mahasi technique was that they had a they had a relatively low bar. Basically, he said, "Well, look, if you practice like this for three months, it's pretty much guaranteed you'll be sotapanna by the end." And I was like, I'm, <laughs> "Hey, I'm there. I'm there. I, I can handle that. Do that." And uh, once I'm a sotapanna, then hey, I'm just off traveling. Great. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Maybe I didn't do it right. <laughs> maybe I didn't try hard enough, or maybe it was the problem was that samadhi was starting to come up, and that blocked and ruined the whole thing. I don't know. But um, for example, you know, when when I Shortly after I had ordained as a monk, then I was spending a lot of time with Ajahn Piek living at his monastery and discussing these things. And, you know, and he is by no means um, um, like dogmatic about anything. But he would say, well, you know, he's quite familiar with, you know, the different schools there. And he said, well, you just couldn't see how it would be possible to to attain the first level of insight without having mind in very deep samadhi to the level of um, jhana. And in Thailand they use the word apana instead of jhana, which is a commentary on the term. And he said, yeah, yeah, just don't see how it's possible. Um, and he was someone who kind of really understood it from his own personal experience, and you know he didn't he didn't go around saying this publicly, or he wasn't trying to sell a particular technique. He was just kind of speaking from his own experience. And then more and more, you know, with similar discussions with various teachers and forest ajans, pretty much got that same same flavor. And uh, you know, Ajahn Piak was one who who put a lot of emphasis on samadhi because he had that ability. But you know, some of his contemporaries, like Ajahn Anand, Ajahn Dan, uh, although they were also very talented, um, someone like um, Ajahn Anand, I think for the first five years, all he did was contemplation of death, you know, just um, just developing that fully. You know, which is more of the vipassana, you know, if you want to how to classify it. But, you know, that worked for him too because in, you know, in the end it all kind of came together and, uh, and ended up being in balance. So I'd like to mention a bit about what happens as the mind becomes more peaceful and how that works. You may have experienced some of it uh, at some point, uh, or or maybe not yet, but still it's worth looking at and talking about a bit, just so you have a certain understanding of how these things work. And you know, really, it's it's not about this technique or that technique. It's it's just about the natural unfolding of the mind. And whether one's Asian or Western or, or ancient or modern, you know, there's there's just a basic 
um, way that the mind unfolds. And then in the process, we've, you know, depending on our cultural and personal upbringing and background, we've got different things to work with. But the basic, uh, basics of the mind are essentially the same. So if you're, um, let's say you're following the meditation technique of watching your breath, but in conjunction, repeating the word buto, just as an example. And uh, you, you reach the stage where, you know, with the, every breath breathing in, you say boot, and every breath out breath, you say do, boo. Do, boom, do. And just repeating those words helps to uh, to stick with the breath. It's very, it's a good, solid, grounded technique. And let's say you're able to do that mm, more or less uh, for the whole meditation period. It's not that there aren't thoughts, but the thoughts have, may have gone a bit more on the periphery. Or there'll be more space in between the thoughts, the, the moments of quietude, inner quietude, start to um, become um, more quiet, or they start to become more often. Right? So a thought kind of pops up, but there's like spaciousness around it, and there's less and less inclination to follow that thought. So the thought pops up, and it's like, boom, boom, another thought another thought, or there's maybe a little babbling kind of on the side, but you don't really pay that much attention to it because the majority of the attention is with the the breath and the buto. And as you do that, generally pains in the body will begin to lessen. It's interesting how that works, you know, what pain is. You can sit for the same length of time, and if the mind is agitated, it can be extremely painful. And if the mind is peaceful, there may be no pain whatsoever. <coughs> so where is the pain? Is it actually in the joints and the muscles, or is it in the mind? Well, it's a combination of the two. But anyways, that's how it works. and. When you're able to develop a bit of peace, then the body does start to become a bit more buoyant. It feels a bit more like uh, calm and floating and uh, generally peaceful. It's important at this stage not to lose the clarity because you can start to feel a bit peaceful and then a bit dreamy kind of floating away in a cloud, <laughs> a bit dreamy or foggy, and, and before you know it, ding, the bell's gone. But um, because of the relaxation, and because it's pleasant, then you may have uh, forgotten to maintain a high degree of clarity. So, if you are able to maintain that clarity, that continuity of attention, then more and more the attention goes on the breath and the buto. And then you might notice um, 
something like the mind is generally getting a bit lighter. It's like the, the inner landscape of the mind. Uh, it's starting to get a bit brighter. And that's just a normal byproduct, nothing to get excited about or worried about. As the mind does start to calm down more, you might find some uh, interesting things happening in the field of vision, I mean internal vision, your eyes are closed, you might start to get uh, some little interesting colors here or there, or um, some interesting shapes. Sometimes uh, if you're visually oriented, you can have whole like visions of, of things starting to come up. And no matter how interesting they are, they're, they're, uh, they're just a distraction. It's just mental rubbish. Right? And it's important not to take the attention off the meditation and start paying attention to those. Right? So that, that is... Uh, um, it's important to know that because sitting for hours in meditation you might find it a bit boring sometimes and then some interesting visual stuff starts to happen you think oh well that's more interesting it's, it's uh, be an inclination to pay attention to it but it's really just a distraction and it doesn't lead anywhere it doesn't lead to anything beneficial and if you take your attention off of your meditation object then you've taken away the causes and conditions for the peace of mind and the whole thing's going to start to collapse. So if something like that starts to happen, fine, it's not a problem, just don't pay any attention to it. It's neither good nor bad, just let it be. Keep coming back to the breath, buto, buto, buto. And if the general brightness of the mind um, becomes more and more prominent, more and more bright, and feels kind of nice and stable, then that might even start to kind of come together a bit, um, you know, either in a, in a shape or just a general brightness. Then that is generally a good sign. It's just a sign that my understanding of it is that we're starting to come closer to the innate brightness of the mind, which is normally covered over by the five hindrances, thinking, and um, all of the rubbish. And when the mind starts to calm down enough, when all of that mud starts to calm down, then it's like the uh, little bit of the brightness starts to shine through. It's like that simile of of uh, the bar of uh, the ball of tar, and uh, it's like samadhi tends to dissolve some of that tar, the turpentine of samadhi. Dissolve <laughs> <laughs> some, and and then, uh, but first you get some dull light coming through. But if you stick with it, then it gets brighter and brighter. But again. Don't make the mistake of starting to pay attention to that brightness as a meditation object because that's just going to take your attention off of the cause of the peace, which is paying attention to your breath and buto. Just stick with that. If the mind's getting brighter, great, fine, wonderful. But again, just stick with 
the meditation object persistently and try to make it as continuous as possible so that you're aware of every detail of the breath coming in and going, crystal clear. Doing this will naturally bring up a sense of happiness. And that type of happiness is not to be feared. It's not a problem. That's not a type of happiness that we have to worry about getting attached to. The type of happiness that comes from meditation has specific terms, like piti, uh, sukha, uh, bliss and happiness. And the Buddha was very clear that these are factors of enlightenment. Piti is a factor of enlightenment. Um, pasadi, tranquility, samadhi, these are all factors of enlightenment. Uh, so it's very fortunate for us that the, the closer we get to uh, pure, real purity of mind, the more pleasant it is. And so that's a, a natural carrot that we can rely on and, uh, you know, uh, allow ourselves to, to, to go in that direction. If you've grown up in a guilt-ridden society, sometimes even wholesome happiness can bring up a bit of fear saying, oh, am I indulging here? You know, there's, this is spiritual practice. It's not supposed to be fun. <laughs> spiritual practice, religious practice, is supposed to be really serious, grim. <coughs> anyway, well, well, this is different. So if your meditation's going well and it's feeling bright and light and happiness is starting to come up, great. But... Just stick with your meditation object. Don't allow yourself to get distracted by the feeling of being happy. Now, if you're repeating a word, as you become more and more calm, as uh, the, the, the samadhi deepens, then at some point it will, it will become so calm that you can't even repeat that word anymore. You're feeling so calm that even to make the effort to repeat Bhuto is just too disturbing. So you just, it, there's a natural point where it just goes really quiet and silent. And even the breath at that point is going to be very, very subtle. You know, at that point you may only be able to, to detect it around the nostrils, around the tip of the nose. And the sense of brightness might be coming brighter still. But again, at this point, resist the tendency to take your mind off of the breath. And just stay with it until that sense of brightness just um, becomes overwhelming. And then there'll be a natural point where you just take that brightness as a meditation object and you switch over to it. But it's not something you want to rush into because if you rush into it, it's just the meditation falls apart. You can't rush the whole process. It takes even more mindfulness just to be aware of that brightness and sustain it than it does just to follow the, the breath around the tip of the nose.
And it takes even more mindfulness just to follow the breath around the tip of the nose than it does to repeat um, the word, buto, internally. So you can't really rush the process. And mindfulness gradually becomes more and more and more refined and sustained and clear. So this is real mindfulness practice. I mean, this is where mindfulness really becomes strong and continuous and starts to have a lot of power. And at this stage, you might still be able to hear sounds, but you you won't be interested in them. They're, you know, if, if someone came next to you with a gong and rang it, you'd probably hear it. But if there was um, a car honking its horn on the road over there, you probably wouldn't even register, just because so much of the mind's attention is really absorbed in the meditation. And then, at this point, you can't do anything to rush the process. You can't do anything to consciously make it go any faster or to make it go deeper. All you can do is just to sit back and enjoy it. Put the energy just into the continuity of awareness, maintaining that awareness. And if it goes deeper, fine. If something different happens, fine. If nothing ever changes, fine. Just be perfectly content there, watching that with clear awareness. And at some point, maybe, if the mind is in balance, then it can the dualism between that which is watching and the brightness or the perceived meditation object will start to disappear. And that, that, that dualism of the watching and the watch dis- disappears and the mind just unifies and becomes one. And that's what we mean by jhana. <clears throat> and so if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, and the eighth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right samadhi. Sama in Pali, Sama Samadhi, uh, can also be translated as the perfection of. So if you take perfection of Samadhi as um, as jhanas, because the, the, the Buddha will often define you know, what does he mean by these different factors in the Noble Eightfold Path. And the regular, you know, the, the standard stock formula is the four jhanas for right Samadhi. And so jhanas are the perfection of samadhi. When the mind becomes unified like that. Now at this point, in the suttas and the commentaries, etc., you can find discussion about the different levels of jhana. But from a practical standpoint of a meditator, it really doesn't matter. No, and I'm I'm not saying that lightly, but in the end, you know, it really doesn't doesn't matter how deep the mind goes into jhana, or even if you call it jhana, even even trying to put a label on how deep your samadhi is, if you have an experience like that, is just asking for trouble, and and can do a lot to strengthen the ego rather than reduce it. Right? Say, 
Well, finally, I'm one of the great ones who has realized jhana. And uh, you can be sure if a thought like that arises, then <laughs> not not jhana. No, no. And you know, I and if you're sitting there in meditation and you think this must be jhana, then you can be assured, no, that's not jhana. Not Johnny yet. Because in Johnny you can't even form thoughts. The mind's unified. <clears throat> now, whether you ever attain Johnny in this lifetime or not, like I said, it's it's a it's kind of not really our business. You know, we plant the tree, how fast the tree grows and how big the tree gets before we die, that's really the tree's business. You know, our job is to, to plant it right and to look after it and you know, encourage it, give it good growing conditions. So talking about jhana is not to try to stimulate some goal-oriented, obsessive striving, because that's not helpful. But at the same time, you don't want to fall over on the other side and say, well, um, there's nothing to achieve in meditation and uh, I shouldn't worry about you shouldn't even think about these stages. Because it is helpful to have um, sort of long-term guiding goals. So, well, however far we get in that direction, okay, it doesn't really matter. But it's good to have a direction. It's good to understand you know, how the, the process works. Now, the real benefit of, of jhana, I guess, comes in in a few different ways. One of the benefits is that, okay, the mind's unified. You come out of that state and think, now, why was there so much happiness there? I mean, people who talk about jhanas, they, they describe it as um, a much more satisfying happiness than anything that they had ever previously experienced. And so why was it so happy? Why was it so pleasant? And upon reflection, one of the things that comes up is that it's because so much was let go of, at least temporarily. So much was let go of. You know, so much of the uh, you know, attachment to the body, you know, even subtle attachment to the body, um, can be a, a block to getting into jhana, or attachment to sounds, not wanting to let go of sounds, but just allowing all those, those uh, senses to temporarily let go of them and to be able to let go of thoughts and let go of the, 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 the things behind the thoughts. There's a lot of letting go that happens just to allow oneself to go into jhana and reflecting on that, think, oh, you don't have to convince yourself because the mind gets more information and it sees, oh, actually, the more I let go, the more happy I am. Oh. And um, it's just like what those four sajans say. <laughs> <laughs> and another benefit that comes from doing, from having a deeper experience of samadhi is that when you come out, when the, when a you, you can't decide when to come out, but when it, 
when that state naturally kind of comes to an end, when thoughts start reappearing, when sounds and physical sensations start reappearing, then that's the best time, the optimal time for picking up some theme of investigation for developing insight. And so that's that's the time. That's the time when the mind's um, it's very it's in a very pure state. Uh, it's not distracted. It can easily take up a theme of investigation and stick with it without becoming uh, getting drawn off by extraneous thoughts. And yet in jhana, you can't actually develop insight. You know, the mind's just one, so there's nothing to... Con- there's no it's like contemplation and, and contemplated happening. The mind's just one. But, but coming out of that, that sense of dualism arises again. The, uh, the sense world arises again, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And usually if it's been a good meditation, then there's a period of time afterwards that that sense of calm pervades and you can keep it going for a while you know, so for example however deep the meditation goes you know if you have a nice peaceful sit and then afterwards you get out there on your meditation path and you start to bring up a a theme of investigation some of the things we've been talking about what are the things that we identify with as ourself as being us, you know, and then just contemplate that, or contemplate uh, the body as we've been doing, or as part of body contemplation, contemplate the senses and how the senses work. This is also very useful. Um, for example, you're doing walking meditation. You've got your eyes open, and you say, "Okay, well, what is seeing?" Right? And who is seeing? Okay, there's an eye, there's a physical organ, and then there's, if there's enough light and, and objects, then uh, still, that doesn't mean that seeing is going to happen. We actually have to pay attention to it. If our attention is, is fully on something else, then we don't actually see something, or we don't see it very clearly. But if we avert our consciousness to it, if you've got a good functioning sense organ plus... Um, light and, and something to look at and consciousness is paying attention to it then you've got seeing happening but who is seeing? because when you really look at it there's seeing but no seer and then there's you go to the ear and there's there's hearing happening but but there's no real hearer like a person hearing and there's physical sensations happening but who is the one you know, is there any person, really, who's experiencing those physical sensations? You go through all these senses, and you can kind of uh, you know, break down this idea that there's some entity behind all of these sense doors that's receiving the sense information. Because when you look at it very clearly, it's more just like it's kind of happening by itself. And it's very strange to see that. But the more you look at it, and especially if you have uh, a mind which can then stick with it consistently, 
that, that's come out of a peaceful state of mind, and you're able to combine that samadhi energy with, uh, with this sincere analytical a wish to understand a human body and mind. Yeah, then sometimes some interesting things start to happen. And things don't necessarily uh, look the way that we thought they did. So, how weird. I didn't, never knew it was like that. And even though I uh, read about these things, somehow experiencing them is even different. But yeah, I guess I would kind of describe it like that. So again, that's a great benefit of developing samadhi is it gives real oomph to investigation. Or, you know, you don't have to wait until you have a good meditation to investigate the senses. If you find that your mind inclines in that direction, then go ahead and, and start that, kind, that type of investigation. And then you may find that that leads to, suddenly your mind just wants to be still and calm. And then just go with that. And allow that to remain still and calm for as long as possible. And never feel like you have to pull your mind out of calmness to do some vipassana. <laughs> right? You know, you can just... Or, or feeling, okay, I've experienced a bit of calm, now what? Now what? I'm ready. No, I'm ready for the next step. Come on, what's next? Just allow the mind to rest in a state of peace and calm for as long as possible, because that in itself is already very purifying for the heart. It's already very purifying. Uh, it's not the whole thing. It's a very important intermediate stage, but there's no. There's no need to rush to get out of there, and the the longer you can allow it to to just sit and quiet and still, the better. Because the definition of of samadhi, like real samadhi, is that the five hindrances are no longer present. So um, sensuality, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. These, these hindrances to meditation have just been calmed out of existence. And when we look at what is it that gives rise to ignorance, or avijja, it's the five hindrances. So by allowing the mind to rest in samadhi, you're starving ignorance. Even just that much you know, is, is, is removing the food from continuing. To, to feed ignorance. Now, one interesting sutta that I came across once was the Buddha. Uh, in one of these rare moments when he's, he spoke a bit about the future, and he says, uh, now, the disappearance of the true Dhamma uh, 
it won't it won't come about like all at once, but it will come about um, in gradual stages. And for example, there when there are certain causes and conditions that will lead to the disappearance of the Dhamma. And one was um, people losing respect for the Buddha. And another was um, people losing respect for the Dhamma or kind of creating their own Dhamma in the place of, of the Buddha's Dhamma. <coughs> or people losing respect for the Sangha. And people losing respect for the training and people losing respect for samadhi. And so in, in various ways you can see you know, some of these things coming up in Buddhism sometimes. But uh, the last one you know, pertains to what we've been talking about tonight. Uh, when, there's, when it actually goes so far as um, that some people will talk about samadhi in, in dismissive terms as if it's a wrong practice, uh, then that's a little worrying. Right. That's a little worrying. Um, that's that's definitely an extreme, and you know even the Buddha said that. Well, that's that's a, a troubling sign to watch out for. So when it comes right down to it, don't worry about all these labels, <laughs> because you can just tangle your mind up, and well. Samatha is this, and Vipassana is that, and and you know it could just get uh, unnecessarily complicated in a way which doesn't actually lead to to development of the meditation. It's important enough to know that there are these basic tendencies of the mind towards peace and calm as well as clarity and insight. And, and they work together all the time. And the, the stronger one gets, the stronger the other one gets, and, and they both get strong together. And you don't have to worry about them getting too strong or too developed. You just you know, you don't worry about you know, what level we're at. You just keep doing more of it. And that takes persistence and dedication. And it, you know, we're here together for just a little over a week. But, you know, in the big picture, that's just uh, a drop in the lake. So it, it takes a, a very deep, long-term commitment to Say well, this is this is what I'm going to do in my life. It may not be the only thing we do by any means, but this is one thing that I I think is is really important. Maybe the most important thing in a human life, and just having the persistence and dedication to to keep on with it. And so we've still got one more full day left of the retreat. You know, a lot can happen in 24 hours <laughs> when you put your mind to something. 
So please don't start thinking about what you're going to do on Sunday yet. You know, focus all of your your energy into what's going to happen on you know, Friday night. <laughs> and when tomorrow comes, then you've got a whole full day. You know, really throw yourself into it. You've got all this momentum from all the hard work you've been doing all week. So it's a, it's a lot easier to develop meditation tomorrow than it was, say, last Sunday. So go for it. As soon as the bell rings, keep that meditation going as you get up and as you go out on your walking meditation path. Boo-do, boo-do, boo-do. While you're doing the dishes, boo-do, boo-do. And you're cleaning the toilet or eating or showering. Boo-do, boo-do. Stick with your breath or whatever. But really apply your mind with energy and enthusiasm. And then it is... uh, It's amazing. The positive things that can come from that. So I offer you this reflection this evening. <clears throat> so.